You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our May, following on from March, Journal Club episode. How are you, Ben? Mate, I am good and uh, flabbergasted after what has been an incredible in-depth discussion from what I thought might be uh, fairly superficial given the amount of things going on in the world right now. That's right. Who knows whether it was cause or effect, but uh, having three months instead of one and having a little thing like a pandemic in the middle of it seems to have been uh, good news for the discussion. Yeah, somehow it's worked out pretty amazingly. So we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, Speaking of good news, Ben, first author, fabulous paper in advances in simulation, I believe. Yeah, very exciting. So uh, we were lucky enough to be invited to talk about uh, Simulcast as a community of practice and and publish that in advances and uh, looking forward to sharing that with the world. And my dad is very proud. (laughs) And so he should be. Um, For those who are interested, it has been a reflection over on our journey for the last four years. And so if you want to have a look, Advances in Simulation, if you go to their website, you'll see about Simulcast uh, and Ben Simon writing and taking us through the, uh, the theory and applying it to our experience. But that's not the paper we're going to talk about today, Ben. Why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to the paper that has been the Journal Club Uh, paper for this month and it is a conceptual framework for the development of debriefing skills a journey of discovery growth and maturity and this is by adam cheng walter epic michaela colby michael megadushian kamal bajaj and vincent grant and it's in simulation and healthcare in 2020 Uh, so ben do you want to um take us through the paper Yeah, absolutely. So look, in this article, Cheng et al. uh, really dig into exploring professional development for debriefers. And they argue that while there are many papers dedicated to debriefing frameworks and methods and conversational strategies, there's been much less discussion within the simulation community about how debriefers move towards obtaining expertise over time. The majority of the paper then presents a debriefing-specific adaptation of the Dreyfus and Dreyfus five-stage model of skill development. And for those of you who, like me, don't know that model, uh, it describes five developmental stages of skill acquisition, moving from novice to advanced beginner to competence to proficiency and then expertise, and proposes that individuals draw on prior experiences to progress through each stage and reach higher levels of expertise. And the authors actually take that model and then compress it into a simpler three-step process, redefining those stages as discovery, growth, and maturity. They argue that having three categories instead of five actually allows the description of each category to be less specific, allowing educators from a variety of backgrounds to sort of more easily identify where they're sitting within that framework. Any thoughts so far, Vic? Yeah, I mean, I think this is useful guidance and I like the detail that they go into about why they want to have a conceptual framework, what that actually means, and like you, it was a chance to read a little more about the uh, Dreyfus model and think about how it 
reflects uh, on any skill acquisition. And I guess for someone like myself, it's easy to position that with clinical skills, which, as they point out, in some ways are simpler and easier to describe. And one of the challenges, I think, in this paper broadly and at the outset is that what we regard as good debriefing can actually be quite hard to describe. Yes, I think that's something that came up in our article discussion a lot. So I'm just going to spend a couple minutes just giving an overview of the phases that the paper describes. So uh, they outline that the discovery phase is described as the earliest one where debriefers essentially acquire the foundational knowledge of key debriefing concepts such as learning about frameworks, conversational strategies and psychological safety. And they argue that at this stage, debriefers often have a lot of intrinsic cognitive load at the start of their journey. And so they often seek rules and relatively rigid structures for debriefing to cope with those challenges. And certainly the image that description constructs to me is sort of those early debriefs where you're really clutching your pearls tool uh, and finding it sort of a, uh, a rock to cling on in what can sometimes be an overwhelming experience, uh, which was certainly relatable for me. We then move on to the growth phase, which is described as one where the debriefer has achieved competence in a solid understanding of the basics and then develops a broader utility belt of strategies and conversational techniques to deal with more unexpected things. The phase is highlighted as the realm of routine experts who can still sometimes struggle with adaptability or new ideas or move between models, particularly in the face of unexpected debriefing challenges. And then finally, the maturity phase is described as one where the debriefer achieves unconscious confidence and high levels of theoretical understanding. And interestingly, the perspectives of the authors to me come out a little bit more here, where they really seem to emphasize that this final stage of maturity also importantly includes an appreciation of impacting clinical outcomes through educational intervention and also embracing this concept of adaptive expertise, uh, which is essentially moving beyond just being a routine expert in one particular standard technique and instead being able to instinctively shift between strategies uh, to deal with unexpected issues as they arise. And certainly a, a number of our comments this month were about sort of equating that a little bit with artistry in many ways. Any thoughts there? Yes, this is a body of literature that I am certainly not well-versed in. Uh, so it opened my eyes and some of the discussion points from our discussants underlined that as well. And I think this is one of the things that is easy to embrace in theory when you read it on the paper and perhaps harder to think about how you apply it. That said, I think this is actually one of the strengths of the paper because they present this through three case vignettes of simulation debriefers who they're describing at each of these three stages. So they give the vignette describing their behaviours and then they give a little paragraph about at that stage the debriefer characteristics, knowledge and skills and I certainly found that incredibly easy to understand what they were talking about. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because certainly to me the vignettes, yeah, construct a very relatable and understandable image in my head that that, that clearly part of your brain just gets, but then when you try and narrate down what that means specifically by sort of criterion, it can be a lot more challenging. The article then moves on to matching professional development opportunities to the different phases, which essentially moves from teaching sort of more concrete frameworks and conversational micro skills towards a later emphasis on peer feedback and teaching others as debriefers reach maturity. 
In their discussion, they do acknowledge that progression towards maturity is not always going to be linear and that our progress will not always be predictable. But they argue that the simple act of having a framework can help us as a community reflect on our development and strategize towards improvement, both as individuals and as a culture. Any reflections you'd like to share before I move on to the the general club discussion? Yeah, I guess just to think about the structure of the paper, and I think it is logical that they move here to faculty development. What you want to know, as well as those, as you described it earlier, self-calibration against what stage am I, you also want to know how to get better. And I think the figure one shows us at different phases uh, the scripts and tools, for instance, are going to be very useful at the earlier phases uh, while getting good at giving other people feedback about their debriefing uh, and getting yourself into different contexts to practice your debriefing skills uh, within those different arenas, I think are more advanced opportunities that we have to improve. So I actually think it was a logical end um, to the paper. But, uh, yeah, let's dive into the discussion because I think there's so many interesting issues that our discussants brought up and that I also am interested in. That was incredible. And I do actually want to thank Simulation in Healthcare as well in that they uh, made this article open access for the first month that the Journal Club was open. And that got a little bit derailed by the COVID pandemic happening. Um, But it was pretty exciting to have that level of collaboration where uh, the article could be read by anyone for the time that we were having that discussion. Um, So much appreciation for that. Sounds like you've got uh, a lot of influence around the place now, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's not who you know, right? Wait, no, it is who you know. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, this this was just a jaw-dropping month. I think it could have been pretty intimidating for some people, actually, and it was an interesting challenge to facilitate as well uh, in that the conversation was uh, very high-level, fascinating and deeply engaging. So uh, I want to thank all of the contributors this month. We had Belinda Lowe, Beth Thomas, Susan Eller, Christina Chung, uh, Jessica Stokes-Parish, Vic yourself, Anne Mullen, Deborah Nestel, and Jenny Rudolph. And uh, there was much fruit from that labour. So look, in attempting to summarise a very complex and rich discussion, the big ticket items to me were that we really discussed the purpose of a conceptual framework. And is it essentially a description or is it a prescription for something, Uh, which is your phrase that I've stolen. And uh, we explored the concept of expertise, how to measure it, but also how to nurture it. And the fact that it can be really hard when we don't know how to describe something to work out how to teach it. So one of those big ticket early items was just thinking about the purpose as a conceptual framework. And uh, Susan Eller put it really uh, nicely. So she argued that one's perspective on conceptual frameworks and, and this paper as well are interrelated. So she stated that one definition of a conceptual framework is as a justification for why a study should be conducted and includes a description of known knowledge, identification of gaps in understanding and declaration of the methodological underpinnings of the research project. And essentially what I think she's implying here is that if one views the article as a final say on a topic, it's just sort of defining it as is, then this article could come across as flawed because it doesn't provide 
enough answers or solutions. Whereas if it's instead viewed as a conversation starter or an opener that's really exploring, well, what do we know and how can we organize this in our heads in a way that allows further development, then the article can be seen as having a very different purpose and impact. So it was a pretty interesting first point. Yeah, I agree. And I think the authors in the paper talk about a conceptual framework and as something that emphasizes the interrelatedness of relevant variables and outcomes. Uh, And I'm just quoting from the paper there. And I think that is important because when you look at their table one, the kind of things that they're saying are interrelated here is uh, certain amounts of knowledge, how people will adapt it to context, uh, how people perceive the context, how they'll cope with complexity. And I guess these are those uh, interrelated elements that we're not sure how they all combine. That said, I think that also means that you have got those questions that Susan was alluding to because this model then, because it's linear, assumes that the development of each of those is more or less in parallel and I'm not so sure that's true. I don't think the authors think that's true either. But of course, as soon as you start to put yourself in a linear shaped model, you end up having to make compromises along those lines instead of having a little bit of a mind map of the various, this would be an alternative, a mind map of the various things that make for quote unquote good debriefing and just saying, well, they might all come together in different ways at different times for different people. It doesn't have to be a linear model. So I know that might seem kind of theoretical, but I think it is relevant as people are trying to improve if they think that they're stuck in a certain stage when in fact it might be that there's other factors that influence how effective their debriefing is. Yeah, it's a really tricky balance, I think, as well in terms of asking, well, who is the audience for a particular paper? Um, And I know certainly for myself, not being of a uh, PhD caliber type academic, that um, there is a certain level where that, you know, if you move to a certain level of conceptualness, then uh, that starts to become sort of lacking in pragmatism. And, and so actually having a paper that says, look, here are some concrete things that you can do is, is genuinely really helpful as well. And so trying to find a way that provides that overview while still remain, remaining pragmatic enough for a certain audience must be a tricky challenge to write for. I just love how you said conceptualness in there. Kind that of was- highlighting the lack of PhD academicness, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think your point is a good one, and the and coming back to the is it description or prescription, I think is relevant because if you're talking with your you're joining the conversation with your other simulation debriefing ac- academics, then I think it is fine to be a description and a reflection on on watching the progress of the many thousands of debriefing learners that these authors have had between them. I think the leap then is, can it also be a prescription that if you are starting at point zero or wherever you are on your debriefing journey, is it truly a guidance for improvement? Uh, And that's pretty hard to say for sure until coming back to some of my positivist worldview, you actually have some data on learning curves and you actually have some collected 
uh, information about how people progress through those. And I think that actually is pretty lacking. And that is, in fact, the point, one of the point, one of the points that Beth makes is about how empiric research is needed. And that's very much how Christian Crowe's article came up because he did do a lot of uh, interviews with people who were regarded as expert debriefers by their peers and others and really talked them talked through what made them good and how did they get there. And I think, oh, well, I might use that as our segue. So uh, certainly the, the second primary theme for discussion to me was this concept of debriefing expertise, particularly adaptive expertise and the discussion about how hard it is to measure and even define and then therefore if we're finding it hard to 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 define how do we strategize to nurture it so while most of the respondents in the discussion this month agreed on the importance of debriefing expertise and particularly this concept of adaptive expertise the article generated that discussion and a number of experienced nursing educators actually voiced some familiarity with the Dreyfus and Dreyfus model which they argued or some of them argued that it made a, a helpful base idea to scaffold additional comment concepts to um, however as you mentioned so beth thomas uh challenged the article uh with a beautifully referenced and in, uh, incredibly thoughtful uh post that i suspect will have taken some time to uh prepare for um, and she argued that uh, the paper doesn't explicitly address how one transitions from routine to adaptive expertise nor does it explain why adaptive expertise can be achieved by some, but not by others. And she elaborated that in some ways, uh, utilizing the Dreyfus and Dreyfus model and arguing that it implies a natural progression through the accumulation of concrete experience. And so uh, she argued that that underemphasizes, if we're going to use that as a fundamental underlying structure for our conceptual framework, that that then underemphasizes the importance of uh, these other techniques that the article does acknowledge. So approaches that foster metacognitive skills in critical thinking and reflective practice and this concept of artistry. And at that point, she, she highlights the practice development triangle for debriefer development, which was highlighted in Thinking on Your Feet, a qualitative study of debriefing practice, which was actually an article from Advances in Simulation in 2016 um, that uh, sort of supports a shift in focus from micro-skill development towards approaches that cultivate values and a sense of artistry. And it was interestingly, from a history lesson point of view, our, our second journal club article ever on the Simulcast Journal Club. Yes, and that was the way I met Christian Crowe, so huh, how much more important could it have been? Oh, there you go. The other quote uh, or the other quote I wanted to draw out of her comments which relates to this is, and I quote, the linear development of routine experts could impede the development of adaptive experts. And I also think that's interesting as, again, I make comparisons with the acquisition of clinical skills uh, and if you teach the rules and people go through the steps, that may work very well. But if you are after complex skill performance, somehow you've got to either transition beyond that or maybe, in fact, it's better not to take such a rigid rules-based approach. And the article that she quotes there I was interested enough to go and have a look at, and so this is an article called How Student Morals of Expertise and Innovation Impact the Development of Adaptive Expertise in Medicine. 
uh, Myelopoulos and Riga in Medical Education 2009, and they went back and interviewed medical students about their learning. And they used a thematic uh, analysis of interview-based data. And, and I'm going to quote their results. Participants expressed a general belief that as learners in healthcare systems, exerting any effort to be innovative was beyond the scope of their responsibilities. And they made the conclusions that students' perceptions of themselves as having no responsibility to be innovative in their learning process have implications for their learning trajectories as adaptive experts. And I thought, Actually, that was a fascinating illustration of what we're worried about is that when you're clutching onto your Pearl's framework, you are not actually thinking about a lot of the other things that might be needed to become this adaptive expert debriefer. Now, I would imagine that the Pearl's framework authors wouldn't want you to be doing that, but I guess that's the risk when you start teaching through rules-based approaches. Uh, At what point do you encourage divergence from that or is it a logical linear sequence beyond it or is it something that needs to happen alongside it? Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting stuff and I don't know. I mean, uh, I oh, I might get in trouble for saying this. I <laughs> well, I don't know with who even I might get in trouble for saying this. But I mean, I guess I love that concept of artistry and adaptive expertise and having a rich palette to construct this unique and contextualized learning experience. But I also. I, Do you call you know, it a rich palette with all your hell? Yeah, that's exactly. That's, <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's well, you know, you joke, but that's the thing, right? Because when you're actually introducing people to these concepts and stuff, you know, the number one question I would get would often be framed: "Is can I say this? And can I do this? And what do I do when I am faced with this particular problem?" Like people do really want. A recipe and rules at the start and oh, I think I know and I think people say to me yeah is that is that good is that a good question is that yes. a bad question I yeah. say, well, it depends it depends <laughs> but and so I don't know you I, I would certainly make the argument that 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 is a part of learning is is starting with that basic structure that you might not see as prescriptive but at least as that basic underpinning scaffold that you can then hang more stuff on that a lot of us certainly do seem to need to go through. Um, So I don't know if I I would argue that classifying that and acknowledging the existence of that, yes, it could potentially contribute to the propagation of it, but I I think it also reflects reality. Yeah, and probably the person that said this best in the in the discussion was Jenny Rudolph, where she said you have a technique and then you can develop a habit of it. And she was talking about using something like the um, positive regard uh, and advocacy inquiry techniques. And so if you practice that enough, you will get into the habit of it. It doesn't mean that you're stuck in it. It just means that when the appropriate opportunity to apply that technique comes up, it is familiar, easy, and you won't be blowing all your cognitive load on trying to remember how to do it. Yeah, and I think from an artistry perspective, like you might want to paint some amazing impressionist Cezanne or something, but at the end of the day, you still need <laughs> we to back work on the out. Yeah, we still need to work out how to combine 
uh, colors to make purple. Like you, you, do, like, you do need to learn that rule. <laughs> and, and there, you know, there are a lot of different sort of. I was listening to some animation podcasts the other day where they were describing the principles of acting as it relates to animation. And I think you know, there's all these rules and concepts that you'd never think about that are highlighted. And I, I think that's that's valid to acknowledge them as long as we don't become consumed by them being an enforced reality or, or a prescriptive format for how to move forward that prevents innovation. So it's a very interesting challenge. I think it is. And I think the strengths in this paper are the naming and the illustrating. And back to the word you used before we started recording about self-calibrating. Uh, and so I think that's useful whether it's for debriefing educators, people involved in faculty development, or debriefing learners. And let's face it, probably all of us are both of those things at some level. Uh, But I think having that does help situate ourselves and the people that we are teaching and learning these skills with. Yeah, I I think um, Belinda Lowe actually commented that you guys had used this in your EDGE meetings and and the question that you'd introduced when you discussed this paper was, well, where do you see yourself and how do you move yourself forward? And I think that's a very useful way of of making this conceptual paper a pragmatic conversation starter. Yeah, what was interesting to me when we did this paper at our EDGE meeting was how everyone was so keen to describe themselves as complete novices when I knew to the contrary and I was stuck between trying to normalise and validate their lived experience and saying, don't be ridiculous, you're much better than that. (laughs) (laughs) uh, But it sort of I wondered why they were unable to peg themselves where I pegged them. Uh, and um, I'm still not sure about that fact. That's I a, guess it is a complex skill. It's a very Australian thing to do as well, though. Oh, I guess so. I think. Yeah. And uh, Well, I always think back to Hannah Gatsby on Nanette, I think, breaking down that uh, self-deprecation as a tool to give yourself permission to speak amongst people who you don't perceive as as being your equal. Hmm, that sounds like another whole episode of Simulcast. I <laughs> wonder if Hannah Gadsby would join us. Probably not. She's probably a very busy woman. Oh, I don't know. I reckon she'd have a bit to say about the lockdown. This is true. This is true. Hey, listen, I wanted to draw attention to one of the references in the paper, and that was the seven basic plots. So one of the perhaps more contentious parts of this paper is taking the perfectly good five stage Dreyfus and Dreyfus model and saying, actually, no, we're just going to use three stages. Now, so the authors did have to go out on a little bit of a limb to say why they had proposed the three stages and they uh, justified it according to their collective experience and saying that this is a complex skill that people come to with various skills already established, particularly if they are educators with small group or facilitation skills or they have some insights into how to manage learning conversations. But one of the things that they describe is the uh, they want to adhere to the rule of three described by Booker, which said that if you have three things, it's much easier to understand. And I thought, what is this rule of three by Booker? So I looked it up 
And this is a 2004 book by Christopher Booker called The Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories. And this fellow is uh, actually, you'd be interested in this, Ben, way back to Jung-influenced analysis of stories and he's got the basic plots, you know, overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, the comedy, the tragedy. But the rule of three says things always appear in three in stories, such as Cinderella's three visits to the ball, the three little pigs, two of whose houses are blown down, and, of course, the famous Goldilocks and her bowls of porridge with one is um, too hot, one is too cold, and one's just right. So I did think that this is excellent basis on which to choose a three-stage model. Uh, it's also a principle from comedy, I think. Comedy works in threes is a uh, sort of improv thing, I think. I think to me, I mean, uh, we were debating this before we started recording, but uh, I really appreciated that Belinda actually sat down and tried to extrapolate it into a five-step process again purely for the sake of an intellectual exercise, which set the uh, journal club off to an amazing month. But uh, I think to me it really comes down to how are you using this tool and are you using it to specifically classify and then prescribe a solution or are you using it as a conversation starter? And so to me I think actually the use of three um, phases in some ways allows more flexibility and openness and, you, you know, it's not challenging to sort of get a feel for where you might be sitting uh, while still prompting the underlying important thing, which is to, to self-calibrate, reflect, and think about how you can continue to progress. And, Ben, you've got some expert commentary for us. You're listening to Simulcast. So our expert this month is Michelle Brown, who is an assistant professor and program director in the Department of Health Services Administration at the University of Alabama, where she leads the Healthcare Simulation Master's Degree Program and teaches simulation design, advanced debriefing, patient safety, effective communication and teamwork. And she's provided us with a lovely, very personal reflection on this piece and on uh, professional development for debriefers in general. I'm just going to quote a couple of uh, paragraphs from her commentary and I'd encourage you to read it in its full form in our PDF that we upload online. Michelle states, Sometimes being on this debriefing journey feels a little like hiking without a map or without a good understanding of the lay of the land. There are numerous high-quality opportunities for skill development and even practice through formal training. But what does this big picture look like and how do I progress to the next level? She argues that debriefing, like all skills, exists on a continuum and that the words themselves, discovery, growth and maturity, convey movement within each stage as we grow into our roles. This framework also provides the opportunity for us to sit somewhere in the in-between. She argues that clearly stated goals can provide inspiration for people on a journey of growth. Uh, and I think she thinks this evidence-informed framework can be adapted for the needs of each of our institutions, for the goals we have for each of our colleagues in simulation. It's not a checklist, thank goodness, but rather the framework presents concepts to help us launch a co-created conversation with faculty-specific goals and a discussion of collaborative opportunities for training, mentorship, feedback and reflection. She states that regardless of the stage you are in, and regardless of how many times you have transitioned between stages, there is always room for growth. And this article provides a conceptual structure for developing debriefing skills. Warm up your coffee or get another cup of tea and take time to peruse the pages. Digest it, 
and determine what it means for you and your organization. So thank you so much for that, Michelle. And I'd encourage you to read our PDF summary, which is uploaded with this podcast on simulationpodcast.com. You're listening to Simulcast. Hmm. Well, sounds like we're wrapping that up then. Two things. I guess we should probably reflect on what we're going to do differently as either teachers or learners of debriefing. And then maybe you're going to tell us about the paper for next month. Yes. So with regards to what am I going to do differently from this, I think this is going to continue to help me reflect on the concept of adaptive expertise. I think it's going to remain a useful prompt towards self-humility and to remind myself that there is never one way of doing something. And I think particularly when you're in one institution for a long period of time, particularly becoming more senior in that institution, you can start to believe that the way the world works in that hospital or service is the way that debriefing works everywhere. And so I find this article a useful call uh, to maintaining flexibility and an open mind throughout all stages of self-development. Sounds very erudite, Ben. Uh, I would agree. I think for me, the reminders here about this uh, difference between so-called routine expertise and adaptive expertise uh, is useful and it is language that I will probably adopt in some of my own debriefing workshops. <clears throat> Likewise, I think some of those diagrams will be useful discussion points as well. And I think getting someone to self-calibrate uh, I often start debriefing workshops with things like, you know, what do you think are your strengths and weaknesses? Whereas I think uh, maybe this paper might get people to have a little bit more language about describing their strengths and weaknesses uh, in things such as the skills, the knowledge and the context applications. So I think I will use it in that way. No, that sounds good. I do want to close that discussion by just highlighting how much value and how many pearls were in there that I couldn't summarize and bring into the podcast. And and certainly when you have the editor-in-chief of BMJ Stell dropping by and giving you a history lesson on the practice development triangle and how the concepts of routine and adaptive expertise were first described in a paper about Japanese sushi chefs. You're really not doing yourself justice if you don't come along to the blog and click on it and just take the time to read the article. And uh, if for those who are finding it intimidating or overwhelming, it took me a few rereads to get all of the uh, concepts straight in my head as well, but it is well worth the time and please do come along and check it out. Well, that's probably a nice also opportunity to compliment you Ben on how well you moderated that discussion because there were some pretty high-flying concepts being thrown around and I think each time you had a lovely job of uh, thanking people for their contributions pushing them to uh, add a little something more connecting them to some of the things that people had done and sometimes explicitly saying look although there's a lot of high-flying conversation here we just want to know what you think really and uh, I personally found that rather useful. Thanks, and thanks for your lovely paraphrasing of the discussion as well. So uh, next month's discussion is going to be on a lovely open access paper from Advances in Simulation entitled How to Include Medical Students in Your Healthcare Simulation Centre Workforce. It's by Sandra Vigas, Doris Ustergaard, and Peter Dickman. Uh, it was published 
this year, quite recently. So uh, come along when we publish that shortly and uh, look forward to hopefully another amazing month of discussions. Yep, and that is from the group who work out of Copenhagen in Denmark and uh, also friends and colleagues, so I'm certainly looking forward to that discussion. Well, thank you, Ben, and thank you for moderating the discussion, for giving us our case study and, of course, selecting a fabulous article. So Simulcast listeners, don't forget to go onto the website, www.simulationpodcast.com. Also follow us on Twitter at sim underscore podcast, uh, but also follow myself and Ben Simon if you want to get even more encouragement to join the discussion uh, at Simulcast. So thanks again, Ben, and uh, signing off for Simulcast. Have a good night. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.